I would always be getting homemade pickles from India. Every time I'd run out of it, I would go to the Indian shop and get kind of an equivalent. But all you could find there were pickles that used egregious amounts of salt, lots of oil, or had preservatives in them. So I decided to make my own. I'm Gillian Abbott with a year of mindful eating, stories from the food I eat. They say you are what you eat, and I really believe that. But how much control do we have over what's in what we eat? Food today isn't what it was 50 years ago. It's different chemically, and it's fairly well documented that processed food tricks our brains and stomachs, causing cravings for more processed food. What struck me the first time I went to Smorgasburg, Brooklyn's storied outdoor food market, to help my son set up his craft cocktail mix store, was how much of the food on offer was traditional American cuisine, such as hot dogs, donuts, and mac and cheese. But there was a twist. What those young vendors offered was the real version from scratch without preservatives, additives or anything artificial. A real revolution. Young people taking back control of food. I'm so pleased today that my podcast includes two of those young vendors. If you're a New York foodie and a regular at Smorgasburg, you've probably already met them or bought their products. First up is food entrepreneur and author Chitra Agarwal whose fusion South Indian Brooklyn vegetarian blog, ABCD of Cooking, is redefining Indian and American cuisine. Our second guest is already familiar to readers of my Mindful Mouth Instagram and listeners to this podcast. He's Alex Abbott-Boyd, founder and CEO of Cocktail Crate and maker of craft cocktail mixes. He's a beverage entrepreneur, a smorgasburg vendor and a foodie about town. And yes, for those who don't know, he's my son. We're also very fortunate to have Meryl J. Fernando, founder and chairman of the MJF Group of Companies and creator of Dilma Tea. Chitra, can you tell us what the ABCD of cooking is and what you do? ABCD stands for American Born Confused Desi, which is someone like me who is of South Asian descent but grew up in America. So it's kind of a play on that where all of the recipes are based in traditional Indian cooking techniques but then influenced by living in New York City and seasonal produce. I also host events and pop-up dinners and cooking classes. Alex, can you tell us about Cocktail Crate? What I'm doing with Cocktail Crate is we're making craft cocktail mixers. The big inspiration for that is just to try to make craft cocktails effortless for people to make at home. I always loved cocktails, cooking, and entertaining, and I would just find it to be time-consuming and expensive to stock a full bar and make drinks for all of my friends when they came over. So I started pre-batching different drinks, and then that kind of led to Cocktail Crate. I started the company back in 2013 hand-making every bottle, selling them at a food market in Brooklyn called Smorgasburg. Now the mixers are in about a thousand stores around the country. I'm not sure if my listeners know what craft mixers are. Can you explain? Sure. So what I'm trying to do with cocktail mixers is very similar to what the craft brewers have come and done to beer. It's two things. It's one, dramatically increasing the quality of the ingredients. 
whereas conventional mixers like the neon green margarita mixer just made with things like corn syrup and food dye. I'm using fresh citrus juice, I'm using organic agave nectar, I'm using honey, maple syrup, and bitters. So really great ingredients. And then I'm also getting really fun and creative with the flavors. So instead of a plain margarita, we do a spicy sriracha margarita. Instead of just a whiskey sour, we're doing a maple syrup whiskey sour, things like that. I brought Alex and Chitra in today to show you how young food entrepreneurs are taking back control of food and creating honest, clean, and healthy products. 30 years ago, Meryl J. Fernando did the same thing with tea. The tea industry was dominated by two or three global brands who manufactured cheap tea that lacked regional integrity. Consumers were virtually forced to buy the heavily advertised big traders' brand names. Quality of tea dropped, so did prices in their strategy to eliminate competition and become the sole player in the market. Their tea would be warehouse for well over a year waiting to be mixed with various other teas prior to packaging and branding. While his companies are now the third largest supplier of finished tea to Russia and Australia and the number one supplier of tea to New Zealand, Fernando started his business with one tea bagging machine. To his mind, the most damaging change was to do with who made the decisions within the industry. At that point, accountants took over the business from tea tasters and blenders for the sole purpose of maximising profits. The idea that accountants have taken over resonates with me as a journalist. The great lament in journalism is that the internet has destroyed it. I don't agree. I think it's that the wrong people are making decisions. Can you respond to that in terms of the food industry? Yeah, I think it's definitely true that when you look at the largest mixer companies and that the mixer companies that have been around for a long time, it's 100% the accountants that have been making the decisions. I like to say when you look down their list of ingredients, every single ingredient is a compromise. There's no way that a real bartender caring in any way about trying to make the best flavor would use corn syrup instead of a sweetener like even just cane sugar or honey or use citric acid to pretend to be lemon or lime juice. What's really exciting for me though and what I've noticed is in this world where all the cocktail mixers were made in this way, cocktail mixer sales overall have been slowly declining for years and years and years. What people are starting to respond to and getting really excited about is cocktail mixers like mine, where we just go back to like the very simple idea of, well, you should use real sugar and fresh juice, and then you'll get a delicious cocktail. And that segment of the cocktail mixer world is just, it's booming and growing and growing and growing, while all of those uh, very flavorless compromised drinks have been declining for years. Related to my work at the ABCDs of Cooking, I started coming up with different recipes of Indian pickles or achars based off of what I would get from my farm share. And so I started making Indian pickles out of like heirloom tomatoes, green gooseberries, rhubarb. I was working with Wilklow Orchards and I started serving these pickles to my students and my guests at pop-up dinners and people started to really respond to them. So that made me feel like, okay, well, this is not something that I just like. Maybe other people may like it as well. My husband is a food packaging designer, so he helped me to actually package it up and put it out into market. We started doing markets like Smorgasburg, demoing at small specialty stores, and getting a response to these pickles or achars. 
There isn't really anything like it in the U.S. market, but there's tons of these products in Indian markets. In India, making pickle is something that every home cook does, really. And it's all based off of what types of vegetables or fruits are in season. And that's what I was going off of when I created my recipes. But nowadays, people just go to the store and buy whatever is on the shelf. And it could be there for two, three years. Who knows? But we're getting away from the quality of what people grew up eating or what they remember eating. And that's what I want to bring back with Brooklyn Deli. There's a couple of points I want to take up with you, Chitra. You're trying to recreate what the home cook did. It's really trying to get back to the roots of food, which makes what you're doing even more interesting because you're on the one hand getting back to the roots or principles of Indian home cooking, and yet you're doing it with ingredients that are totally new to the cuisine. Well, I also think that people are getting more interested in supporting local farmers or local agriculture as well. And that's been kind of the style of cooking that I've been specializing in for the last seven years. So I really kind of taken that mantra and just kind of ran with it. I feel really good to be supporting local farmers. Like some of the farmers that I developing these recipes with, I now source thousands of pounds of tomatoes. Listening to you has left me wondering about your customers. In addition to attracting New Yorkers to your pickles, are you also attracting Indians? How is the Indian community responding to your products? So that's an interesting question because I think that our products are geared towards more of a Western audience, but I have seen that a lot of Indians actually are also drawn to our products because people are kind of looking towards having healthier diets. They want lower sodium in the products that they buy. They also don't want as many preservatives and artificial ingredients in the pickles that they eat. So unknowingly, I think we also are attracting an audience of people of South Asian descent that grew up eating pickle and are looking looking for something that's a little bit more healthy and maybe has more of a mission statement behind it. Thanks, Chitra. It's wonderful to hear this is a wider trend. Turning to you, Alex, when you said every ingredient in mixes is a compromise, it affected me on an emotional level. It's really sad. It's like publishing. Accountants run publishing. They run Hollywood and people say technology is turning people away. But it's not the technology. And yet, I understand it's not just a simple matter of replacing citric acid with lemon. There are implications, for example, shelf life. So can you walk us through what happens when you make the decision to use real food? What are the implications not only for you, the producer, but also for the consumer? There definitely are considerations. So the biggest one is cost. It costs a lot more to use real ingredients. It also affects things like the shelf life becomes shorter if you don't have the kind of preservatives that can extend it. Even just things down to like the color. If you look at a traditional margarita mix in a supermarket, it's probably bright green, whereas mine is closer to brown. And that's just because that's what happens when, when you have lime juice in a bottle for a while. It doesn't affect the flavor, but it affects the color. And many people didn't want to have that natural color as part of it. What really helped me to break out of that mold was simply never being part of it to begin with. So I started not knowing anything about food production and I just developed the recipes as a complete novice in my home kitchen and then I tried to adapt them to the food world. So I was coming at it from this is the real authentic recipe, how can I make it at a bit more of a scale versus 
coming at it where I knew how everything worked at scale and how can I tweak it to be better around the edges. But it was an extreme battle. I mean, for two years, I handmade every bottle, and then it was very easy for me to know exactly what was going into it. And then we reached a point where I had to partner with a, a slightly larger food company to help me make them. And the, the company I founded is an amazing, small-batch, high-quality food company. And I thoroughly explained everything about my recipes to them. And then when I showed up there on the first day for test batches, they had lime juice concentrate because it was just like, they didn't hear the phrase lime juice. When they heard me say lime juice, it was just straight to lime juice concentrate. And it was this like horrifying goo that can apparently stay open and out of the fridge forever and it doesn't go bad. Because they were a great company, they quickly learned and now we're using all this great fresh juice that I sourced from a family company in Florida. But it was just so ingrained in the way that they operated, I think it would be very hard for them to have made that jump on their own. Whereas me coming completely from the other side without having any knowledge, I was able to kind of bring that and try to force that into the food production system. Alex, it's so striking when you say the company making your product just couldn't hear fresh lime juice. But you're talking about it in the context of innovation. Merrill J. Fernando started out small and is now huge. But before he got huge, he came up against opposition from established conglomerates. Here's what he said. I pursued my dream to launch my own brand. Sadly, Dilma is still the only global brand name owned in a tea-producing country. I had to face threats from local agents of the big traders, overseas traders, in my early stages. Even our own government was worried that my efforts to launch a fully value-added branded tea from Sri Lanka would harm our bulk tea trade, which is a supply of raw tea in large plywood boxes for value addition abroad. I explained that the use of tea in those foreign traders' brands was restricted to cheap supply sources and Ceylon, because of its quality and relatively high price, was being displaced. I stepped in in a tiny way, believing that others would follow my example and help our industry. That has not been the case. That's surprising to think that Merrill J. Fernando was so successful and yet no one else was able to replicate his model. I just did a case study for the Cooney School of Journalism on Narratively, which is an innovative long-form personal essay website. When I was working on that, I did a lot of reading of the theory. There was article after article about creating an entrepreneurial environment within large companies. It was kind of amusing to read. I thought, good luck with that. I've had a lot of experience in large corporations and they hate innovators. What's your reception been like? Are they welcoming you or trying to squash you? I don't think for the most part the large conglomerate food companies even notice what we're doing, at least what I'm doing at this stage. But I think overall on a larger level, they are really relying on the smaller food companies to be their innovation. How could someone like Coca-Cola come out with an authentic lower sugar healthy drink when all their money is made selling corn syrup water. It would be very hard for them. But what they can do is they can buy already authentic and real brands like Honest Tea 
they just made an investment in a very high-end cold-pressed juice company called Suja Juice that already built up a real authentic product that has a real following. And they seem to be looking to the smaller companies to be their source of growth and innovation. I mean, really, they just want to sell whatever people will want to buy. And there's a huge movement now towards healthier, more organic and more sustainable food. And there's been a huge increase in the number of, of small food companies that get acquired. Like this year, we had artisanal nut butter company get acquired, the Justin's Nut Butters. There was a fancy jerky company called Crave that got bought by Hershey's. There's a Suja juice company that just got invested in by Coke. So there's this huge wave of investment from the large companies into the small companies because they're looking for that innovation and they're looking to be able to connect with those more health conscious consumers. I agree with Alex too. I mean, well, for our company, we're very small and we're kind of a lone wolf on the shelf right now for our category. There's only a few others. So I do feel that larger companies pay attention to smaller companies that are doing some interesting innovations only when those companies are taking market share from them. And that's when acquisitions occur. Those companies are based off of a model that is very cost-driven, and smaller companies are more driven by providing a quality product to a consumer. They're only paying attention, I think, when their bottom line is affected. It's a case of why did the Titanic sink? Too large to turn. But there is momentum for change. When I'm at the supermarket, I can now get Bob's Red Mill flour instead of the regular brands that are fortified with preservatives. A while back, I started to make everything myself. Then I get terrified. Flour isn't flour anymore. There are so many additives and preservatives. Now, at least when I walk along the aisles at the supermarket, they do offer gluten and preservative-free products. The larger corporations are responding. But even organic food contains preservatives. So it seems like shelf life is a really huge factor. Can you just walk us through the pros and cons of preservatives? I don't actually know anything about preservatives because I never attempted to use them, so I never put in any time to learn about them. The downsides to the shorter shelf life is just, you know, the product needs to sell quicker. Many of my retailers and also the distributors that take my products to the retailers, they all expect there to be a certain amount of shelf life left in the product when they get it so that there's time for it to get to the store, so that there's time for someone to buy it, so that there's time for them to enjoy it. So I just have to be a little bit more careful to always make sure I'm not making too much at a time so everything is very fresh when it goes out the door. But besides that, I don't really know anything about the preservatives. Well, if I can just interpret what you said, you're creating a situation where people have to consume fresh food. (laughs) I don't think that's such a bad thing. Okay, Chitra? I also don't use preservatives in my product, and that definitely affects the shelf life. But I was lucky because I'm using traditional Indian cooking techniques. So when I had my recipes that I had developed, they actually were good on the shelf for a year without adding any. So I didn't have to go down that road. But again, I do think that the use of preservatives in some of these other products is also a cost-driven strategy because the thing is, is that they can produce very large amounts of their product now. And that helps them because when you're buying at scale, you're able to do it cheaper. And adding that preservative in there means that their shelf life is increased. So they're able to produce a lot and it lasts a very long time. So we're getting away again from fresh food. There does seem to be support among consumers yearning for real food. Seriously, I don't want to be afraid of my food. 
in my firm conviction brands are made not by traders but by consumers i think he's onto something there one thing i thought of at smorgasbord is that the movement away from globalism has at least two branches one is those who occupied wall street or support trump the other is young entrepreneurs bringing locally sourced food closer to the consumer I think that's very much true when you're talking about craft food because a lot of times people that are producing these products are people that are not satisfied with what is on the shelf currently and they want to make the product that they want to have and hopefully there's other people that want that product as well but I I do think that that is the motivation My main motivation was a personal one. I loved cocktails and I knew I wanted to start my own company, so I just started making cocktail mixers that were really good. But I think the only reason I still have that company 3 years later whereas some other food companies that started at the same time as me that I knew the owners of are no longer in business is because there were customers for those products. They kind of validated that idea and helped me refine it. You know, my first products were actually a little bit different they were packaged differently there were a different flavor mix they were priced differently and i just had to listen to all my customers and figure out exactly what they wanted and refine it and refine it so i could continue making it and continue being in the business Meryl J Fernando also said it is my firm conviction that every businessman should try to leave our world a better place when they leave this earth and he talks about inequality and all these issues globalism raises it is my belief that every business which tastes success should share some of its success however small with the poor and the needy if that is not done business and wealth become bad words in the eyes of the poor and huge numbers of poor people will envy successful businessmen. I think there is envy and it's justified by the disparity in wealth and the way corporations just use consumers, feeding us all this stuff that will kill us if we eat it. You're both making beautiful, safe, healthy food. Do you see yourself as change agents, as someone who is making the world better? So, I don't think cocktails are quite as healthy and nourishing as many other food products, but I don't think that's the point of them. So, for me there's there's a Ben Franklin quote that I really like, which is there cannot be good living where there's not good drinking. So, I'm just trying to improve everyone's time that they spend with family and friends, relaxing and having a good time. I'm trying to make that taste a little bit better and be a little bit more fun. I think it's objectively true that my mixers would be healthier, but I don't really think that's the point for me. I think it's it's just about having a great time with people you like. Well, I guess my achars have medicinal benefits because I use a number of Indian spices in them and fresh fruit and produce. They're healthier in that respect, but also I mean it's more about taste than anything I think with my product. But from the beginning, I mean I've been hand making my product at St. John's Bread and Life, which is one of the largest food pantries in Brooklyn, and I also employ workers from the soup kitchen since I've started about 3 years ago. So I do feel like people at the pantry are very excited about the product and and there's definitely an effect that i feel like from a community standpoint that i've been able to be a part of and it's been great working with employees from st. john's because not only have they 
taught me a lot about kind of navigating a commercial kitchen space, but they've also learned more about Indian spices and become more familiarized with Indian cooking techniques, which is also kind of part of our business, which is educating people on this different cuisine from India and how to use it in their everyday cooking. I grew up in rural Australia in a place called Kangaroo Flat, and when I was young, people there were in denial that they lived in Australia. They steadfastly maintained British cuisine, pre-World War I British manners, etc. It was kind of hilarious, but we were maintaining a Britain that no longer exists. So with my Year of Mindful Eating blog, I'm actually chronicling a cuisine that no longer exists. And the thing is, although I want to remember these foods, I'm happy to only get them once a year. Alex, no cuisine is more American than cocktails, but the idea of people going out to three martini lunches nowadays is laughable. You're definitely right that cocktails are an incredibly an American thing. They're almost very strangely American. It, it took Americans to take British gin and French vermouth and make a martini with them, or to take American whiskey and Italian vermouth and bitters from Venezuela and make a Manhattan with them. So inherent in cocktails in American culture, which goes back at least 150 years, is just getting very creative and very inventive. And in a way, that's exactly what I've tried to do with all of my flavors. So my flavors are all twists on classics. So I take things that people are familiar with, like old-fashioned daiquiris, whiskey sours, margaritas, and then I put a new and, and somewhat modern twist on them by using something that's like very popular and trendy now, like grapefruits or sriracha or, or all these different spices. For me, I'm not trying to preserve something that's, that's totally lost. I mean, cocktail culture is actually booming here in the U.S., and it's very easy to go out and find either a very classic drink that would have been drunk 100-plus years ago in the U.S., like an Old Fashioned or a Manhattan, and it's also very easy to go out and to find a totally new and very creative drink. But what's very hard to do currently is to have those at home and to enjoy those easily with friends. So that's, that's where I'm trying to kind of preserve both the tradition and the creativity for people to enjoy that at home. And Chitra, you're yearning for South India and bringing not quite Indian cuisine, but an updated version to Brooklyn. Tell us what food means in your heart and where it comes from and how you're updating your cuisines. Well, I grew up in a household that was very based around celebrating traditional Indian cooking. My dad is from North India and my mom is from South India, so they both cooked in the house and were very proud of the food that they grew up eating and wanted to share it with me and my brother. I'm writing a cookbook about South Indian cooking, and I had to interview and work with a lot of my relatives from Bangalore, where my mom is from, and also many of her siblings. And one thing that I realized, too, is that preserving Indian cooking is, I mean, it's definitely been something that's very important to our family. Um, but what I did find is it's really hard to say what is traditional and what is authentic, because every household is cooking the food differently. And for me, it was actually kind of hard to track down some of these traditional recipes because nowadays people don't have as much time so they're taking shortcuts even my own aunts and uncles saying that oh well for this sometimes we just buy the mix or for that and they point me towards someone from the older generation that can tell me okay well this is how it was done before 
So a lot of the work that I do is about preserving those traditions and techniques. Even if people don't have as much time to cook, I would love to just document it so that people down the line can know that they can reference this and know how to make it if they if they wanted to. And hopefully people will get back to that type of cooking that is less reliant on packaged goods. What you're both describing is the quintessential American thing, to take something and make it new. One thing I wanted to respond to you, Chitra, is my mother, who is Alex's grandmother, was a fabulous cook. We just loved the food. Every day she'd produce three meals, breakfast, lunch, lunch was always two courses, and dinner, dinner was three courses. And one of my sisters decided to sit down with her and get the recipes. It almost drove her crazy because mum would just say, oh, a handful of this, a pinch of that, if I've got this, but if I haven't got it, then I'll use that. There was no way to document it. I have some of her handwritten recipes at home and they are on the one hand wonderful and on the other unfathomable. You had to be there to really experience them. So I'm really delighted that you're doing what you're doing. Finally, Meryl J. Fernando said, If you supply a good, honest product at a fair price, you are bound to be successful. It is a long haul and very, very hard work. Complete dedication and commitment to your objective of making your brand a success. That's a hopeful note to end on. But before we do end, is there any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Actually, one thing that kind of speaks to one of the points that you had was that my parents came here probably, I mean, they've been in this country now for over 50 years. I feel to some extent that they worked really hard to preserve Indian cooking and they have been lifelong vegetarians and I feel like to some extent they almost are in a time capsule here because coming to America they wanted to preserve you know the culture and their food traditions but they also went back to India very frequently and I just recalled going back to India and realizing some of my aunts or some of my cousins actually eat meat. I have been a vegetarian all my life but it's seems that for my parents, to some degree, time has stood still. And when we go to India, it's that time has passed and they have been affected by the trends. So that is one thing that I have realized. I love that point because Australia, like America, is a land of immigrants. It's your time warp idea. The culture, everything is just in a state of flux and you can be kind of horrified by it and buy a gun and vote for Donald Trump or you can write a blog and start a food company and celebrate what a beautiful, wonderful, exciting time we live in. It's terrific. Thank you to my wonderful guests, Chitra Agarwal, Alexander Abbott-Boyd and Meryl J. Fernando. Do check out their websites, Chitra's ABCD of Cooking and Alex's Cocktail Crate, Meryl Fernando's Dilma Tea. Chitra's cookbook, Vibrant India, is available for pre-order now and will be published in May from Penguin Random House. Alex's cocktail mixes are available at Whole Foods, Fairway, William Sonoma, as well as online from Target and about a thousand other stores across the country. Depending on where you're listening from, Meryl Fernando's Dilma Tea is available in supermarkets or online. Thank you for listening. Please follow and like my blog at The Mindful Mouth on Instagram, at A Year of Mindful Eating on the SoundCloud and Facebook. Share it and join me for another serving of A Year of Mindful Eating next time.
A Year of Mindful Eating, Stories from the Food I Eat was written and performed by me, Gillian Abbott. Theme music was written and performed by Lauren Butcher. Editor, sound engineer and mixer is Leonard Collier. Executive producer is me. Featuring music from Young Wes. Copyright 4th Genre Productions 2016.